well, I probably shouldn't have done it. And if I had talked to folks who are wiser than me, I'm certain that they would have advised me not to do it. But back in February, I just had to. I purchased an iPhone. I wish that Josh Staggs was here this morning just so I could see him drool a little bit. But, uh, you know, this thing is so cool. I could just go on for an hour telling you how amazing it is. It's just wonderful. It's got a little map feature. It makes phone calls. I get email. And other than just thinking about the fact that I probably could have spent that money on something a little bit wiser and used it in a little bit wiser fashion, I really hadn't regretted it at all until last Saturday. When I was talking to some guy about iPhones, and he informed me that, well, I, you know, I heard the rumor that in a couple of months, the next generation is going to be coming out, and it's going to have better speed, better stability, better strength, better memory, and even a better price. It's just going to be better. And so I started to kick myself just a little bit. Man, I should have just waited a couple of months. But what would have happened if I had waited a couple of months and I bought it when the next one came out? A couple months later, I would have heard about a newer, slicker, sleeker, better model. That's just the way it is. That's the way it is with technology. That's the way it is with the gizmos and gadgets that intrigue us and excite us. Planned obsolescence. Everybody's always trying to make something better. Wouldn't it be nice to find that there's just something out there that's just the best in its class and it just doesn't get any better than that? Wouldn't it be nice to know that there's, there's at least one thing out there that we can get, and once we've got a hold of it, there's not going to be the next version come out in a year, and we wish we had gotten that instead. This week, in our six months through the New Testament, our Give Attention to Reading plan, we read most of the book of Hebrews. And did you notice within that book how often the writer talked about Christianity being better? In the English Standard Version, the word better is used 11 times, almost completely in the last half of the book. So in about six chapters, it uses the word better 11 times. And the reason is the Hebrew writer is wanting us to know that, that we actually have something that's better. Not just better, it's the best, and it's not ever going to get any better. There's not any covenant that's ever going to come that's going to be better than that. We don't have to wait around and, and, and kick ourselves because sometime down the road, Christianity 2.1 is going to come out. It's just not like that. Christianity is as good as it gets. It's, it's better. And the Hebrew writer points out as he shares so many things about Christianity that it's better than Judaism, it's better than paganism, it's better than humanism, it's better than reincarnationism, it's better than anything. Any plan that anybody has ever come up with or, or perpetuated, Christianity, our covenant with God through Jesus Christ, is better. And today, I'd just like us to take a look at what the Hebrew writer said about that. That we've got it. We've got the better thing. No new version is coming out. And so let's grab a hold of this with all our heart. Come into the presence of God, glorifying and honoring Him. Before we look at that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Our glorious and almighty God in heaven, we praise Your name because You are awesome and powerful. You are the great God, the author of this awesome covenant. And we're thankful for Your Son, the sacrifice upon which this covenant is based. And we're thankful that You've allowed us to come into a covenant relationship with You. The promises that You've given us and the hope that You've offered. 
and Your Son who died for us so that we could be a part of it. Thank You, Lord, so much. We love You, and we thank You for loving us. Please forgive us because we've sinned. So often we've turned against the covenant. We haven't fulfilled all the conditions that You've set up, but we're thankful that this is a covenant of grace, that Jesus died so that those sins could be taken away. Help us, Lord, to live in this covenant. Not because it's just the rules, but because we want to surrender to You and we love You so much because You have done so much for us. Thank You, Father. It's through Your Son, who is the sacrifice of this covenant, that we pray. Amen. Now, I know I probably shouldn't draw attention to it, but as you guys know me, this sort of stuff kind of bugs me, and so I just have to say, I know that our projector is not up to par. Hopefully, by next week, we'll have that taken care of. I've tried to make this as well as you can see it. If you can't see it very well, I apologize. We changed the bulb. It didn't help, so we're going to have to have it fixed and and, uh, probably get something new, but uh, just... Bear with me as we go through it. If you can't see it, there will be outlines in the back that you can pick up on your way out that have all the points on here. The very first thing that we need to recognize is that the Hebrew writer stressed to us that it's just a better covenant. If you look in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 22, in fact, the Hebrew writer says this twice. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 22, it says this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And then in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6 it says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old covenant. He mediates as better, since it is enacted on better promises. This covenant is just a better covenant. But in order to grasp that, we really need to understand what a covenant is. The covenant, we're told, as we look through Scripture, uh, is a solemn agreement a binding force between two individuals, or as often takes place, between God and man. We see a great example of a covenant in Genesis chapter 31. If you'd like to turn there, Genesis chapter 31, beginning at verse 44, Laban and Jacob make a covenant. It says, Come now, in Genesis chapter 31, verse 44, Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar, and Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galeed. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galeed. And Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. In verse 50, If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of, excuse me, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. It was a mutual agreement, a binding agreement that that they were supposed to enforce that stood between them, anchoring them to the agreement that they had. You'll notice that typically within these covenants, there were four important parts. First of all, there were the terms of the covenant. And really, that entire reading that we've just read demonstrates those terms. I, I won't cross over to harm you. You won't cross over to harm me. Laban said to Jacob, you won't take other wives other than my daughters, and you won't oppress my daughters. Now, these are the terms of the agreement. But in addition to that, we have an oath or a commitment to the covenant. If you notice there in verse 53, it points out that Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. They took an oath 
the claim that they were going to live by this covenant. We recognize that there's a curse for violating the covenant. And there again in that verse 53, when he talked about the God of our fathers judging between us, that was that, that curse that would come upon them if they didn't submit to it. And finally, there is almost always a ratification, an external act of ratification. Usually, within the Old Covenant, it was an issue of sacrifice. And that's exactly what we see here in verse 54. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They had a sacrifice, and they ate that sacrifice together. That was an external act of ratification. This sacrifice binds us, and our sharing in this sacrifice says we both agree to the covenant. Now, that's the covenant between two men. The covenant between God and men is a little bit stronger because it's not just a covenant between those with equal responsibility. It's a covenant between God the superior and man the inferior. It's a covenant from God who's not meeting conditions, but who is offering promises, who is telling us, here's what I'm going to give to you in exchange for us meeting certain qualifications and conditions. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28. I'm not going to read those chapters, but... Remember the, the blessings, the promised blessing if the Israelites would submit, and then the promised cursings if they would not submit. God offered them promises. If you meet the conditions of this covenant, I'll give you this blessing and this blessing. I promise you this and I promise you that. But if you don't, there's going to be a curse. And that's a covenant between man and God. God had numerous covenants with men. He had a covenant with Adam and Eve. He had a covenant with Noah. He had a covenant with Abraham. But the greatest one throughout all that time period is the covenant he had with the Israelite nation that was ratified through Moses in Exodus chapter 24. We see that ratification. The chapters preceding it listed the terms of the covenant. But then in Exodus chapter 24, beginning at verse 3, we see it ratified and the people agreeing to it. Notice what happened in Exodus 24 and verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. You see, they're, they're committing to it. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Here was the ratification of that covenant between God and Israel. They committed to it. They, they took their oath. There were terms. There were blessings. There were promises. There was a curse if they didn't submit. And then they had the external act of ratification. They, they killed the sacrifice. They sprinkled the blood on the altar and the tabernacle and on the people. And then the leaders of the people went and essentially had a meal with God sharing in the sacrifice that they offered. This was the covenant. And what an amazing covenant it was. God had, had lifted up this little nothing of a nation. Backwoods, backwater people who really had no hope. They're captive in Egypt. And he selected them out. He picked them up and said, you're going to be my special people. I promise to make you a special people. And I'm going to bless you if you submit to my covenant. What an amazing covenant that is. But what the Hebrew writer is pointing out is that our covenant is better than that one. 
And the other better statements that we're going to look at, most of them explain why it's better. So I want us to just go ahead and take a look at a few more and see if we don't see that this statement at the very beginning, the foundation of the Hebrews letter, that we're in a better covenant. And it just doesn't get any better than this. We're in a better covenant because it's given through a better revelation. Look in Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to read the first couple of verses of the entire book. In Hebrews chapter 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels. Now, that's our, that's our word better there, much superior to angels, as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. There's where the word that would be translated better. In fact, some of your translations probably have the word better in that verse. It's saying that He has a better revelation. In times past, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets. We can think about Isaiah and Elijah and Elisha and, and uh, Ezekiel and Daniel, Samuel, Moses himself, a prophet. God spoke to the fathers through the prophets, but now we have a better revelation. It's not through the prophets, it's through God's very Son. Matt, Jesus told a parable in Matthew chapter 21, demonstrating this this great superiority of Jesus to the servants. In Matthew 21 and verse 33, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a wine press in it, and built a tower and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their season. There's the difference between the servants and the son. God expects that the son demands respect and honor. And then in sending his son, he sent the very best. And in revealing the covenant through His Son, it is of much more effect than what came merely through prophets and servants. But the text doesn't say He's just merely better than the prophets. It specifically says He's better than the angels. And in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 2, we recognize what it said there about His relation to the angels. It said in Hebrews 2 and verse 2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how, will, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, that is, by the Son. And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witnesses by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. What's he pointing out here? He says, look, if the, if the covenant that came through the revelation of angels proved reliable and trustworthy, how much more does this covenant? Because it comes to us through the Son. It's revealed through the Son. This tells us something about some of the other options we have today. Not only is the Hebrew writer letting us know that, he, uh, that Christianity is better than Judaism because of its revelation, but some of the upstart religions that have come along since, thinking that they can improve upon Christianity and the covenant that we have with God through Jesus Christ. They're not any better. 
Why would we choose Mormonism or Islam? Covenants that have come to men, supposedly to special men, through angels. Why would we choose a covenant that comes through a lesser revelation when we already have the covenant that came to us through, through the Son? Why would we discard the covenant with the Son for something with a less powerful revelation? The fact is, this is the, the best covenant that we can be a part of. And nothing better will ever come along. Nothing. The Jews of old had a covenant that had Scripture that came through the prophets. We have a completed covenant with completed Scripture that comes directly from the Son. Yes, I know that He used men, inspired men to write this down. But it's not just the words that are the message. It's the Son Himself that is the message. And as Peter said in John 6 and verse 68, where else can we go? You have the words of life. Which leads to our next point. And that is that it's a better covenant because it provides a better hope. Look in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 19. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 19. It says that the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. What kind of hope did the law have? Here it points out that the law itself, talking about the law of Moses, that old covenant, that it made nothing perfect. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 points out that nothing can be justified by the law, but the law merely gives us the knowledge of sin. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 10, Peter described the law as a yoke that nobody had ever been able to bear, except, of course, Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 22. Galatians chapter 3, Paul had a good deal to say about this covenant. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 22, he says the Scripture, and there he's talking about the Old Testament Scripture, the Old Covenant Scripture, imprisoned everything under sin. That was the hope of the Old Covenant, being imprisoned under sin. In chapter 3 and verse 10, it says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. The hope of the law was a curse. Back up in verse 21, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. He says there's no life that comes from the law. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, that's his point. He was under the law and death came to him because of the law. What then shall we say in Romans 7, verse 7, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. That's the hope of the old law. That's the hope of the old covenant, death. But the hope of the new covenant is life. We already read John 6.68. Where else can we go? Jesus has the words of life. John 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Titus chapter 3 and verse 7 explains what our hope is. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 7 it says, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's our hope. We have something to look forward to. It's not just about this world. We have a hope of eternal life. That's why our covenant's better. Because it offers that life. But understand this. 
When we consider our hope, it doesn't just say that Christianity, the covenant that we have with God through Jesus Christ, is just better than the covenant they used to have through Moses. It says it's better than everything else. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 simply describes every other path that's out there. It says there in Ephesians 2 and verse 12, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I don't care how Satan has deceived you. I don't care what it is that you think you have hope in. I don't care what it is that you think this is the thing that's answering all the problems of my life. If Jesus is not a part of it, you have no hope. Because there's no eternal life at the end of that. Only through Jesus Christ. Salvation is only in His name, Acts 4 and verse 12. It's a better covenant because it offers a better hope. We've got a whole lot more to say about this. But we're going to reserve most of it for tonight. One more thing that we want to see this morning. And that is that it offers better promises. We already read it in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, this was its statement about being a better covenant. It says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant, he mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. Better promise. Look at Deuteronomy 28. We mentioned these promises that God offered to His Old Testament people. They were some great promises. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Verse 1 says, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed you shall be in the city. Blessed you shall be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. He'll bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to Himself, as He has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in His ways. On and on it goes about these blessings. And notice most of them, most of them are material blessings. You'll be blessed in the fields. You'll have good crops. You'll, have, you'll, you'll be blessed in the fruit of your womb. You'll have lots of kids. You'll be blessed when you fight battles. You'll be blessed in the meaning bowl. Interestingly, when we compare that to the promises of the new covenant, the old covenant, he said, if you're part of my covenant, you'll have prosperity. I know Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 says that if we seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, he'll provide all these other things for us. But you notice the promise there is not prosperity. The promise there is adequacy. We'll have enough. So some of us might be tempted to believe that the promises of the New Covenant are, are worse. Because at least He promised them prosperity. They have a great crop. We get enough. You see, the reason is, is because the better promises of the New Covenant are not material promises. The better promises of the New Covenant are spiritual promises that so far outstrip the material promises, it's just amazing. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about the promises we have, the blessing that we have from God when we're in a covenant relationship with Him through the blood of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places 
even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. A plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. What promises? Adoption, redemption, forgiveness, sanctification, inheritance, such that He can then present us holy and blameless before God. The Old Covenant couldn't do that. The Old Covenant couldn't make anybody holy and blameless. They might have good bread. They might have had a great crop. But if God had just left it with the Old Covenant, we'd all be going to hell. The New Covenant that provides us adoption, redemption, sanctification, and inheritance that we might be presented before God holy and blameless. Those are the promises that count. Isn't that so much better than having a good garden? Our covenant has better promises. Why? Why would we ever want to go to any other covenant? There's no covenant out there that can promise that. I don't care how smart or philosophical somebody seems. I don't, I don't care how new age and spiritual it seems. If it's not through Jesus Christ, there is no adoption. If it's not through Jesus Christ, there is no redemption. If it's not through Jesus Christ, there is no inheritance. Because if it's not through Jesus Christ, we cannot be presented to God holy and blameless. What promises we've been given. What an amazing covenant. And there won't ever be a better one. There's no Christianity XP or Vista. No Christianity OSX Leopard. No Christianity 2.1. There's the covenant that God has offered through Jesus Christ. And it's just better. And it doesn't get any better. What we've studied here this morning is not remotely all there is about why it's better. We're going to be taking a look at some more of the book of Hebrews tonight, understanding why it's a better covenant. And I hope that you'll be back with us then. But I hope you can already see what we've got is just better. And it's not just better. It is the best.